First Chronicles 29, 11 through 13 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. That is the proper response of God's creatures to his holy sovereignty. Um, ultimately, what I want us to get from this lesson today is I want us to learn about God's claim to lordship over all things. And oftentimes when we consider God's sovereign lordship over every realm of existence, our meditations uh, tend to more abstract thoughts. When we think about the sovereignty of God, um, uh, sometimes it can, it, can, uh, it can appear so ethereal as a concept in our minds that it doesn't have the power to impact the way that we live. Uh, and I think one of the greatest predicaments of being fallen yet redeemed people who live in a godless society and a godless culture is that if we are not careful, uh, the godless lives and the thinking around us will begin to impact the way we think it'll begin to impact the way that we live so that we can begin the things that we hear the things that we read are are merely just uh, things that are in our mind in our knowledge but don't necessarily impact us in practical ways in the way that we live but we want to make sure there is a sharp distinction between what the christian believes and what the world believes uh, because the world does not believe that uh, god is sovereign they don't live like god is sovereign but we know that God is sovereign and that he rules the world. He reigns over all. And we have to remain that although God is, uh, he's sovereign in his eternity, he transcends all things, he ultimately or imminently, as, you, as some theologians say, he dwells within history uh, intimately and he reigns over all. Uh, but what we need to know is this, that our God is the creator of this world. Our God is the sustainer of this world. He is the provider. He is the ruler of all things. This is God's relationship uh, to us, to the world. Uh, God did not create a world and distance himself from all involvement of that world, but to the contrary, what we and the world around us experience on a daily basis are the outworking of God's eternal decrees the very works of God. That is what we experience. That's how you should define history. That's how you, defi how sh how you should define the very events that happen around you. Uh, but let's get into our topic. God is sovereign, and maybe we can just begin with some definitions. And first, this is where we engage. What is or how do you define the sovereignty of God? How do you define the sovereignty of God? And... Uh, how would you define it? In control of all things? Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Yes, Brad. He does what he pleases. That's right. Anything else? Psalm 135 too, you know, whatever the Lord does, he 
Mm-hmm. Amen. No, I think, I think those are great, uh, great answers, kind of putting all of those together. Joel Beakey says this, he says, sovereignty means supremacy. And just to define supremacy in this context, that God is, he is, in his sovereignty, he is superior. Uh, God is superior to all. He is greater. It means he is dominant, dominant, preeminent. He is an incomparable king, which is why the Bible calls him the king of kings. As you go to Romans 13, chapter 1, and says that there is no authority except from God. He is the king, and he dishes out authority. All men have their authority. Those who rule have their authority ultimately from God. Uh, but sovereignty means supreme, which involves a divine will, uh, his authority, and his power. For God is supreme over all in his being, his rights, and ability to reign and accomplish his will. Now, if you believe that God is sovereign, it's because you believe the Bible teaches it, right? You believe the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. Let's begin in the Old Testament. Where would you go to learn about the sovereignty of God? Where would you go to learn or teach the sovereignty of God as someone wants to show you, uh, if you want to show someone that God is indeed sovereign, not just, you know, that he is just in heaven and he created everything, but what about the fact that God reigns and he rules? In the Old Testament, where do you go? Yes, sir. Amen. Amen. That's good. What else? That God created all things, certainly, certainly. He is creator. And what about God reigning and ruling? What about his will? What about his power? channels of water in the hand of the Lord. I think I have that somewhere. Yeah, that's right. Proverbs 21.1. That's right. That's right. Thanks, brother. Yes. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Go ahead, brother. Yes, sir. Amen. Um, another verse that I have here is Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. And if you kind of want to write down some of these references, study these, remember them, and uh, uh, store them away in your mind. Um, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. I will accomplish my good pleasure. And then, of course, uh, uh, brother, did you say, Jared, did you say 135, Psalm 135, 6? You said, one, okay, Psalm 135, 6. One Isaiah was Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. 
Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. And of course, Psalm 135, 6, as we already noted, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. That's amazing. So here you have not only is God sovereign, and th- th- I think that that's this one way I understand sovereignty is you have to understand who God is and his, his right, his authority, and his will. And then you have to understand God is sovereign, and then the things that God does with his sovereignty. Uh, those two different distinctions are very key in how we kind of understand different things in the Bible. God is sovereign, certainly in the New Testament. Let's go to the, or sorry, in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Where would you go to point out the sovereignty of God, um, that uh, maybe the will of God, the counsel of God, and how God brings about his purposes or accomplishes his will? Jared, did you raise your hand? Mhm. Amen. Amen. That's uh 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. Uh what else? What else can you think of? Yes, brother. Oh, sure. That he has appointed certain ends and established, and he has he has designed uh, uh, the how how, uh, how men and women will how we will live together and where we will live, things like that. What else? I have, for instance, a verse like Romans eleven thirty six which is for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. I even have a verse on here, even John 6, 44, which shows the operation of God in salvation of the Father, saying, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The work of the Father and salvation bringing us to Christ by the power of the Spirit, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, what else? Romans 9, all of Romans 9. (laughs) What verse, right? Uh, what do you got? Sure. That's good. Even before that, uh, even at this, even in uh, 10 and 11, in him, Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance. Listen to this. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Isn't that amazing? He works all things after the counsel of his will. Not some things, all things. He is sovereign. Matthew 10, 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Which means that God is in the details. Uh, He is is in control of the life and death of big birds as well as sparrows. As well as something so small. He's in control of the things you observe. He's in control of the things you don't observe. Uh, even, Even the sparrow that dies in an uninhabited forest somewhere. God is in control of that bird which falls. It's amazing. 
uh, Charles Spurgeon says, I, you've probably heard this quote, he says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That means that, you know, when you, when you see those, those rays coming in your, your room in the morning and the dust mites kind of, you know, there, he's, he, he's saying that the dust is on its predestined trajectory across the window. I mean, it's truly amazing. You think about it. God is in control of everything. I, the sparrow is just like the smallest thing God is in control of. God is in control of all things, and I would say it's a necessity of his existence that he is sovereign and in control of all things. Over and over again, you see the sovereignty of God taught from Genesis to Revelation, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, even as we just see the Bible attest to uh, the sovereignty of God and his character. Um, in his book, A.W. Pink, I've got kind of a lengthy uh, quote I wanted to read to you. He has a book called The Sovereignty of God, and I would encourage you to purchase that book. It is so good, and uh, when even, he, I think he died around 1950 or so, but in his time, he was a very polemical writer, and uh, it wasn't until after he was dead, and he died during a theologic, theologically cold time uh, where nobody was standing up for uh, Reformed theology, and there, there weren't a lot of... Uh, uh, there, there weren't a lot of books being written. There weren't a lot of pulpits who were preaching the sovereignty of God. And it wasn't until after this, this work was published that he really started a, some kind of awakening when it comes to the, the realm of the sovereignty of God. But this is what he says. He says, um, The sovereignty of God, what, to, what do we mean by this expression? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth so that none can stay his hand or say unto him, what, what doest thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is almighty. He is the possessor of all power in heaven and earth so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. And to say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth him best. And to say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate or the almighty, the king of kings and lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. And he goes on to say after that quote, he says, how different is this God than the God of modern evangelicalism? Amazing. What are your thoughts? Any thoughts on that? Even in our current context. Amen. Amen. The decrees of God. So we'll get into God's sovereignty and his decrees and what he does with his sovereignty. We may speak we may speak of God's decree, the singular and thereby emphasize all of God's plans and purposes in their totality. And we may refer to God's decrees, meaning plural, his decrees, and refer to specific events in history, 
which are brought about by God's sovereign power, which are according to his eternal purposes. So from all eternity, God has had an unchangeable plan concerning all of creation, which are consistent with his character. And that plan is comprehensive and embraces everything that comes to pass. That pill has been very hard to swallow in many different denominations or disciplines, different, uh, different theological camps or schools. But God has certain glorious ends for all that he does. And he has decreed how he is going to accomplish those ends. And I think an imperfect analogy of the decrees and their execution would be uh, someone that takes the time, for instance, uh, to plan and build the blueprints of a house. Uh, I think Brian has done this recently. When you, you think about the, uh, you're planning to build a house and you're, 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 you're building the blueprints of that house when the foundation is not yet laid right? Um, you're thinking about square footage. You're thinking about rooms. You're thinking about bathrooms. You're thinking about appliances, you know, etc. Uh, that's a very simple way to kind of describe or explain the concept of God's purposing in ordaining the outcome of his perfect will. Uh, Thomas uh, Puritan, Thomas Boston said this, for God to decree is to purpose and foreordain, to will and appoint that a thing shall be or not be. That a thing shall be or not be. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question seven, about the decrees, says the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, which is the, the, wise deliber- the wise deliberation of the sum total of his design, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Um, the decrees of God are unconditional. Anybody want to get a stab at, that, what, at what that means? The decrees of God are unconditional. What is that referring to? What's that? That's right. That's right. The unconditional means they are not contingent upon us. They're not contingent upon us. They're independent of the actions of man. The decrees of God are unconditional and they are absolute. They are absolute. Anyone want to get a stab at that? The decrees of God are absolute. They are perfect. Um, this means that nothing happens that God has not planned. They are absolute. Nothing happens that God has not planned. And that's just to say nothing happens independent of God. Uh, you're, you, shouldn't expect, you shouldn't expect anything to arise in history that arises independent from the will of God, that arises apart from the will of God. Uh, God's plan is absolute, and God's plan is sovereign. His plan is, his will is sovereign. His purposes are sovereign, which means ultimately God's plans will triumph over ours. Um, Proverbs 19.21 says, Many plans are in 
a man's heart. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Counsel of the Lord will stand. In other words, God is not thinking in heaven. Wow, my creatures have so many plans. How am I going to accomplish mine? He's not thinking that in heaven. Many plans are in the heart of man, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. His counsel will stand. His plans, his purposes will stand. And what God is going to do is he's going to work through the very fabric of humanity and their free decisions, their uncoerced decisions, because God does not coerce. He does not force anyone against their own will, right? To ultimately accomplish his own purposes. Questions? Um, I would say that God does, uh, I guess God can make someone sick, right? God can certainly decree sickness. God can certainly decree mental issues and things like that. But as far as, actual, but as, far as uh, making you do things you don't want to do, like in the realm of ethics, or he doesn't, he doesn't force creatures to do something they don't want to do. If you don't want to sin, God's not going to, he's not going to take a hold of you and cause you to do something you don't want to do. But he can decree sickness, and he can decree, uh, you know, uh, uh, you, you can say like mental disease and things like that, or blindness, like we see in scripture as well, different diseases and things like that that people um, experience, right? Anything else? Clear as mud? It's, um, it's certainly, when we think about this topic, um, and you, you think about, you consider the things that the Bible teaches about the sovereignty of God and his control of all things, it's not, it's not an easy topic. Uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's not the easiest to entertain mentally and consider and think about um, because we're talking about God and his claims to absolute sovereignty. And this is uh, what the Bible reveals about who he is, what he's doing um, to accomplish his purposes. Uh, God will not allow his purposes to be subservient to the goals and the aims of his creation. He doesn't say, okay, you know, whatever you want to do, you know, I'll, I'll make sure that you're okay, and then, you know, maybe if we have time, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do what I want to do, and I'll accomplish my purposes. Um, his goal is his own glory. He's going to use the very fabric of humanity to accomplish his goals. Um, nothing can hinder the plans of God. Uh, Job's disputing with God came to an end with this confession I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Can be thwarted. Uh, any more questions? Before we kind of move on. Yeah. Speaking about um, Pharaoh. Yes. You can force him to do a thing for God to harden his heart. Mm -hmm. Is that actively hardening his heart or passively in that like the character of God, Pharaoh was causing Pharaoh to harden his heart. Not that God was actively changing his will to harden his heart. Right, yeah, so I, I, would, I would explain how that is happening, and, and maybe Pastor Emilio, I'll put him on the spot too while he's here. Um, I, I would say kind of in the, same, in the same vein that what happens with Pharaoh is not being forced, but God is using Pharaoh's hatred and anger 
and I think in some sense he is using that to accomplish his purposes even in Egypt. That's right. And I think that's what you see with like the doctrine of compatibility is that the decree of God and man's free choices um, are, are um, their man's free choices are not violated by God's decree. Um, which means that which which means that the things that Pharaoh e- is either going to do and God's decree is going to work hand in hand with those things, and ultimately uh, Pharaoh is not doing something that he didn't want to do. You see what I'm saying? I I think I had to read that one specifically. Um, what was he was re- he was re- he was mad at the wisdom of God or uh does it does it say that God uh that God forced him to do something he didn't want to do or he was mad at the will of God I I I'm sorry I'd probably have to read it a little bit more closely for myself you know, or if anyone knows the, if anyone knows specifically what the text says. Oh, yeah. Sure. Upon his rebellion from running from what? Yeah. That's right. That's right. No, oh, that's good. That's right. Yes. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. There you see them both side by side. Um, anything else? That's good. That's good. Um, we were actually going to get to this. We were actually going to get to this passage. One of the things that God decrees uh, that He was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This is something that God had planned. That God had decreed. 
Yet he was going to use men to accomplish what he had decreed. And he wasn't going to force them. You know, he wasn't going to create evil inside of them um, and make them do something that they don't want to do. He was going to use their natural free decisions in order to accomplish what he had decreed to happen in Christ. Um, great questions, great questions. They're definitely not easy to answer. Um, but to, to recap on here and uh, where we're at, just speaking about the decrees, the reform position on the decrees is that they are the foundation and source of everything that comes to pass, down to the smallest and most minute detail. Uh, everything that happens is part of the outworking of God's ancient decrees and consistent with his eternal purposes. You'll hear me saying some of the same things kind of over and over here. But that is how we describe the events that take place and, uh, and, and, uh, and how we describe history itself. Um, God is sovereign over all, and by definition, this rules out many erroneous definitions of the sovereignty of God, put forward by Arminianism and put forward by you know, the very thoughts uh, and beliefs of our culture, things like karma, things like chance, things like luck uh, that don't really exist and are ultimately uh, uh, something's just made up by with our imagination. Um, and of course, we, sh we should expect that here our culture has no place for God. It has no place for the truth of God. Uh, we have to reword how we define history, how we explain the things that occur in our lives uh, with such categories that make no reference to God, such as the ones we put forth. Uh, we just put something else in God's place, like karma. The world would describe the world like that, as this imaginary, made-up, sovereign system that will mete out injustices and will balance the scales. You know, what comes around goes around. That's just the, that's how the universe works. Um... And people gravitate towards this uh, system pre precisely because it has no reference to God, uh, no reference to his righteousness, no reference to his justice, his judgment, even though the Bible, clear, Bible clearly uh, says that it is appointed. It is appointed. God has decreed it that men shall die once and after this comes judgment. Um. And we as God's people must not get sucked into believing or be conformed to the very thinking, the thoughts and philosophy of a godless society. Um, and though the world might suppress the sovereignty of God, the church has to, uh, we have to confess it. We have to possess it. We have to ardently strive to make known the sovereignty of God. That is, the, that, that is, in one sense, one of the great messages that Scripture reveals to us is that our God reigns, is that God is sovereign. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, There is nothing for which the children of God ought more to earnestly contend for than the dominion of their master over all creation. The kingship of God over all the works of his own hands. The throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings. He says men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow God to be everywhere except 
on his throne. Now, I wanted to kind of go through, uh, if you want to turn Matthew 10, 29, we'll go through a couple of these verses here and look at some of the things that God does decree. What time is it? Is it already? That's not good. Uh, I'm going to skip through some of this because I want to uh, get to a couple of things before we break out here. Uh, 10, 1029 here. Matthew 1029. Someone read that for us. Amen. We went through, we, we covered this. We covered uh, the fact that God is sovereign over the life and death of animals, especially the smallest ones like sparrows. Uh, Proverbs 21, 1. Um, I will go ahead, I'll, I'll go ahead and read that for you. If someone can go to uh, Ephesians 2.10. Okay. Brian, you got that? Ephesians 2.10. And um, let's see here. And brother, if you can do Proverbs 16.4, we'll read a couple of these here. I will read, even the kings in authority, as we said, there is no authority except that which is derived from God. Uh, you go into Romans 13.1, but Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And so in this sense, God steers the king's heart according to his good pleasure. He can certainly steer the affections. He can certainly steer the heart. As a farmer would often capture rain and would redirect natural streams uh, to nourish his pastures, for instance, God can certainly do that with the king to fulfill his own purpose. And he does that without coercion. Remind you, he does that without coercion. He redirects the heart. Um, what about the sanctification of a believer? Brian, you're on Ephesians 2.10. Yes, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And then you have the same language of God decreeing the things that God has prepared for those whom he has foreknown and foreordained to be saved. God has also uh, ordained their, uh, the, the, the very steps that they would take in their sanctification, the works that they would do in their sanctification. And uh, even the final destiny of the wicked. Uh, if you want to read Proverbs 16.4, brother. That's right. Even the wicked for a day of evil, for a day of trouble. Uh, you have 1 Peter 2, 7 through 8. He says, This precious value then is for you who believe and for those who disbelieve. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He says, For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. You see the same thing, God's decree, and the, the, the reason for their culpability is because they were disobedient to the word. You see this dynamic uh, present in scripture, 
uh, over and over again when, it, when you talk about the culpability of man and the decrees of God and how they are compatible with one another and how they go side by side with one another. Second Peter 2, 3 says, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. It is coming. It is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. You have verses like Jude Verse 4, which says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation. Long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Uh, in ordaining all things, there is no coercion as we were just speaking about sovereignty of god and man's ability to make choices according to their nature is compatible in the very mind of god there are no contradictions here in god's sovereign operations he can operate directly or indirectly in any situation men will make real decisions but those decisions will be according to their nature According to their nature, God is not violating them when he makes decrees. Uh, they will make decisions, free decisions, according to, their, uh, according to their natures. That doesn't mean they have a free will. They make free decisions, which means it's not coerced. It's not a forced decision. It's a free decision uh, according to their nature. But he doesn't force them to do something that they don't desire to do. And as we said, e and as we said earlier, he doesn't create evil where there was none doesn't create evil where there was none and ultimately there is no one in hell who was forced to go there there is no one in hell who was forced to go there and there's no one in hell who doesn't think they belong there uh, i want to give you just what jonathan edwards and his uh, the surprising work of god his personal narrative to the revival that was happening uh uh, through uh, his preaching and the surrounding areas, when he recounted the different reactions and the experiences of his converts, he said this, sometimes at the discovery of the justice of God, sinners can scarcely hold back from crying out, it is just, it is just. Some say that they could see the glory of God shining bright in their own condemnation. And they are ready to think that if they are damned, they could join with God against themselves and would glorify his justice in that way. That is remarkable. That is remarkable. Um, maybe we'll, 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 we'll end here in a second, but... You know, there's a, I knew we were going to get into, you, this is an inescapable when you talk about God's decrees, man's culpability, man's, the responsibility of man. But we must confess the mystery of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Uh, you wind up in error if you stop short of confessing that. Uh, because to overemphasize the responsibility of man is to dishonor God and to deny his sovereignty. And to overemphasize the sovereignty of God Though it needs to be emphasized, but to go beyond Scripture in the sovereignty of God, you end up in cold fatalism. And at that point, you're out of orthodoxy. 
completely out of orthodoxy. You either become an Arminian or worse. There is something worse for some of you here. There is something worse. You either become an Arminian or, uh, you know, you, you, you make God the author of evil. Um, you will begin to cast dark shadow on the character of God. Uh, and so the truth must be carefully maintained. Um, and further, on that same note, you cannot be overly philosophical in this matter, but ardently biblical. You need to be biblical, uh, because sometimes philosophy just wants to try to make sense of everything. It wants to try to comprehend every matter. Uh, it's frustrated when it just doesn't understand something that the Bible clearly doesn't inform us about, doesn't reveal to us. And, and, and most of the time, you, you, you run the risk of going beyond what Scripture says. So we must constrain ourselves to the biblical witness and content ourselves with what it teaches and maintain the healthy tension that the Bible maintains concerning this topic. And I just want to make a point of application here while we have a couple minutes. Though we do not understand this doctrine uh, in its totality, the decrees of God, we can nevertheless be encouraged by it. We can be encouraged by it. Faith doesn't have to be discouraged in the midst of mystery. Um, it can, in fact, flourish even when it doesn't understand. Right? You agree with that? It can flourish when it doesn't understand. Right? Uh, faith can still flourish even when it's grappling with truth. Take the mystery of the Trinity, for instance. Uh, take the incarnation. Take the, hypost take the, the hypostatic union, which anyone uh, can describe it in its fullness right here and right now. Probably not. Um, without faith, these things are truly foolishness. They appear empty. Um, but I think with the eye of faith, they appear as the very wisdom of God. They appear as the wisdom of God. They are full of boundless riches, right? They don't produce discouragement, but they produce awe. They produce wonder at the exceedingly great wisdom and the profound knowledge of God. Uh, everything God does is good. Everything God does is wise because infinite wisdom is the foundation of all of the divine operations. Infinite wisdom. And the apex, we'll leave on this, the apex of the wisdom of God, and this is glorious, the apex of the wisdom of God is found in God's decree to send his son to save a people for himself. Wherein Christ is said to be in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, the wisdom of God. The very wisdom of God. The greatest exercise of wisdom and love of God is seen in Christ and Him crucified. And therefore, we should marvel at the decrees of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's.